Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. Just a brief rider at the start of this edition for which our guest is Eurosport Chief Executive Peter Hutton. Now, if you follow your media reports and you read your Guardian, you'll know that this very well thought of and very well travelled individual is now apparently set for a move to Facebook, uh, an internet media entity that you may be aware of, where he will become the head of live sport. Big news, if true, as they say. This interview, though, was recorded before that story broke. And given that neither Eurosport nor Facebook are yet in a position to comment on the record, there's not a hell of a lot else to add, other than it will be a very interesting story to follow over the coming months, I am sure. Uh, Plenty else to cover, though, and Peter is as engaging as ever on everything from the upcoming Discovery Eurosport Olympic project in Pyeongchang to the cultural changes there in Paris uh, since that Discovery takeover to the future of sports broadcasting in this age of digitization and personalization and all of that stuff. And if you stick around, you might hear some thoughts for the year ahead that may just have a little more to them than I originally considered. And I'm not just talking about the prospects of Peter's beloved Derby County. Take a listen. It's a new year with a big Olympic Games on the horizon and I'm delighted to have with us someone who's going to have a very significant role to play in how those games are watched over here in Europe. A man with a pretty extensive CV across about a quarter of a century in sports media, taking in names including the BBC and Sky Sports, Transworld International where he worked on uh, Football Mondial which was a formative experience for a a lot of people um, growing up watching that particular sport. Uh, IMG, Taj TV, he's been a reporter, a presenter, a commentator um, and of course today he is the Chief Executive of Eurosport. He is Peter Hutton. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot and uh, it makes me feel very old to have an intro like that. Well, that was that was the intention, Peter. How um, how is everything going there? In you, so you're talking to us from uh, the Eurosport offices in Paris. I'm guessing. Do you have a a, a countdown clock on your desk, uh, looking ahead to Pyeongchang, or how how is everything over there? We, we do have a countdown clock in reception, and everybody is fully aware of the time ticking away. And I think now we get to that point where we just want to get on with it. You know, we've been building for this for two years, really. And the amount of logistics and all the boring paperwork and planning that you have to do on something like this. And we can't wait to actually get on with it and, uh, and to start to show the Olympics live. I mean, where does this sit in terms of the biggest projects that you've worked on in your career? Oh, in terms of logistics, it's a huge one. You know, there's a thousand people from us going to be out in Korea, and many more than that working back in the local offices and transmission centres all across Europe. So logistically, it's certainly been a challenge. Um, a lot easier because OBS do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the host broadcast of the events, but um, certainly massive. And and I think you know one thing that is our day-to-day at Eurosport is actually a huge logistical enterprise, putting on 20-odd languages of commentary onto pictures, doing separate localised coverage for many countries now. It's a big factory, um, and the daily work that we do here is something that is really unique in the sports industry. So what's... I mean, we're, what, as we're speaking, just under a month from, uh, from the opening ceremony in Pyeongchang. What's your day-to-day now between now and when you actually get on a plane for, for what will be the last time to, to South Korea and um, and the games get underway? Well, admittedly, there's a little bit of trying to sneak in five-a-side football and watching Derby County, but apart from that... <laughs> we'll get on to that. <laughs> it's mainly about test and rehearse, test and rehearse. You know, we, we've got to be prepared for all sorts of eventualities. We know that we've got a very good system on the ground, but we need to stress test it. 
um, and that involves the fiber systems, that involves the transmission protocols, that involves all the day-to-day, but also fundamentally being ready for this editorially, saying, okay, these different things are going to happen, how can we respond to it, what do we do if there's a crisis, what do we do if stuff goes wrong, and being ready for, you know, what a live sports event throws at you. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, keeps so many of us really obsessed with what we do is that the adrenaline rush of working on big live sports events is like nothing else because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what your big story is going to be um, and you don't know what's going to go wrong. And, and how you respond to that is really the mark of quality. So, um, yeah, we're in a lot of testing and rehearsing and getting ready and, and hopefully a few people are getting some sleep as well and ready for what will be a very intense experience out in Korea. Yeah, when do you actually head out to to join the team on the ground there? We have three charter planes of staff flying out there, and I fly out from Munich on the 3rd of February with 300 or so people all setting off from Munich. We've already got people out there, and in fairness to them, a lot of people have been out there since um, November and December. Um, setting up all our operations within the IBC, the International Broadcast Centre, and out at some of the venues. So the work's been going on in Korea for some time, and it's been great to see the faces of some of our technical staff doing the Olympic torch relay in the last few days, and just uh, showing the excitement and showing the build to the event that's happening out there in Korea. For you, and, and we'll get on a bit more about kind of the the unique structure of Eurosport and the fact that you are operating in all these different markets and languages uh, at the same time. But what's the um, what's the process been in terms of coming up with this concept that you have for the games, in terms of working with Discovery as well, who obviously are your, um, uh, your parent company, um, working with the various different satellite teams around the continent to get something that works on a uniform level and then also works you know, in each individual market? Yeah, I think um, we try to come up with a clear philosophy and a clear sort of guiding principle behind what we do because we started with a contract with the IOC where we're committed to having 200 hours of the summer games, 100 hours of the winter games on free-to-air television, all the big events live on the free-to-air television broadcast. And that gives you a particular challenge because that means that you have to create a unique story around that. And understand that most people will expect to watch the Olympics as they've always watched it, on the state broadcasters, on the big free to airs in those systems. So we have to try and change that perception, offer something different, and offer something that we genuinely be proud of. And as a result, we've really focused in on a couple of different things. You know, One is we very early on came out with a clear statement that we'll broadcast every minute of the games in every market in Europe, which means streaming every event um, from the first game of the, of, of the ice hockey, from every single moment of the curling. Everything has to be out there and available. And that gives us a, a clear difference with how the games has historically been shown. And the second part is about how do we make it about a different quality? Because we want people to touch the games on Eurosport and on the Discovery channels and think, that was brilliant, I'm going to come back, I'm going to go there for more, I'm going to watch after the games as well. So those are our two things. It's scale and volume and offering something physically different. And then in terms of quality, how do you take the coverage of the games forward so that people enjoy it more and also they notice that where they enjoyed it more. They noticed it was on the Eurosport, Eurosport channel or on the Discovery channel. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously... <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, I'm, um, I'm sipping a medicinal lemon drink as we uh, as we go through this but the um you know that you're not going to be the primary broadcaster in a lot of these markets i mean the uk where i'm speaking from most people's first point of contact will be the bbc um you know ard and zdf in germany etc 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 so what's your relationship going to be like with um with some of these broadcasters that you've sub-licensed to um, in order to kind of drive that awareness that, that Eurosport is even covering the games because it won't, particularly in, in countries where it's uh, more of a minority pursuit, kind of the, the winter sports um, world, 
you know, it's not necessarily going to be something that people will be instinctively aware of. Yeah, I think it sums up the challenge of Eurosport in that by dealing with sports events across multiple markets, you're dealing with completely different challenges in many territories. So for the Olympics, we're really proud to be exclusive in Norway and Sweden, for example, and have certain sports exclusively live in other markets, whether that be Netherlands or Denmark or other territories. So the rules are different depending on which territory we talk about. But I think when you look at those places where we are non-exclusive, I think the important thing is to provide a service that is different, that stands apart from what the local broadcaster has traditionally always done. And therefore, you need to invest in technology and take the story forward. You need to invest in different formats and connect with an audience in a different way. And that really leads us to all the investments we've made around our digital content, particularly the viral content that we push out across social media, trying to touch a much wider audience, and the volume of our live streaming on the player. Well, we're hugely proud of what Eurosport Player will offer with all the live feeds simultaneously. You know, sometimes up to 13 simultaneous live event feeds from the event, um, from the Olympics. And, and actually, over a weekend, it can go up to about 50 different feeds because of all the other sport that we're still covering even during the period of the Games. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, that Eurosport Player angle. I mean, it's something you've been working on that, that's been... Um, quite heavily, uh, heavily encouraged by Discovery again is kind of this move to to streaming, to on demand content being available, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you were also a partner with with Bamtech here in Europe, um, kind of their kind of their founding client almost. Does the idea of having something that's not on prime time for a lot of its duration does that help or hinder what you're doing with uh, with digital festival? I think it helps in that, you know, we, we realise that people are going to take the events, they're going to take the content and use them in all sorts of different ways. And as a result, you know, we have to be ready for that. And I think one of the great things about Discovery's philosophy on this has always been to say, look, we need to reinvent ourselves with a direct-to-consumer business as well. And I think Eurosport has been at the forefront of that change of the whole group. And it's something that's been a really good challenge for us because we know that people are consuming the content in different ways and one of the problems of Eurosport is the 30 years of tradition, the 30 years of credibility as a linear sports broadcaster and we need to say that we're much more than that now. You know, we're working on Snapchat, we're available on Amazon platforms, we've got our own streaming platform in Eurosport Player, we've got a huge volume of news and live content that's going on to Eurosport.com. In that way, we can touch the audience in multiple ways. We can touch them in the way that they want to be touched. Um, and hopefully that will help also deliver on our promise to the IOC, which is to put the games on more screens and touching more people than ever before. And what, um, is, it, is it helpful that the first games is a winter games, I guess, for Eurosport, both in terms of it being a slightly smaller media proposition, but also in terms of that being particularly in, in Northern Europe and in the Alpine countries, that being where your area of difference and expertise has been up to this point? Oh, it's one of those things that, you know, you can look at it in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it's true the volume of live events is a lot smaller on winter sports, so you're dealing with a lot less simultaneous venues and a lot less simultaneous feeds. So logistically, it's an easier first step. But at the same time, we are exclusive in Norway, we are exclusive in Sweden. So in our key markets where we have huge audiences thanks to the Discovery free-to-air channels, you know, this is going in with their most important sports event, you know, where you're talking huge audience shares, where you're talking something that really has a reputational payoff, which is massive for us. You know, and we have to get it right because the damage to our reputation if we get it wrong would be awful and the opportunity if we get it right is superb. So, you know, we're again, the answer is different for every market. I always feel like I say that too often. But it is true, you know, and that the Winter Games means this is huge for Norway, for Sweden, um, where we are exclusive. And yes, maybe it does make it a little bit easier in the UK or in some of the southern European markets where the focus and the attention will be smaller. But then it's a different challenge there. You know, it's a challenge of winning people over and bringing them into our content. And one thing that Eurosport will be for years to come 
is the home of winter sports events all year, all season round. So you want to encourage people to become winter sports fans because then they'll come back to us and they'll stay with us, not just this winter, but also next winter and in the future. Yeah, so with that in mind, I mean, when you've been developing programming uh, and, and, you know, developing your, your kind of editorial plan for, for these games, how much have you looked to the expertise that's been there since the 90s and how much have you tried to do things completely differently? How much have you kind of had to tell people who've maybe, you know, might have been working on ski jumping or on biathlon since, you know, 1992 or 94 or whatever that we have to do this differently because the nature of the opportunity is different and the nature of the audience could be very different? Yeah, I think, you know, we bring a lot of strengths from the history and that the relationship with athletes, the credibility with athletes and organisers is so strong. And the people here know you organise every event inside out. You ask for a phone number, there's 20 people in this building will say, OK, I've got that guy's phone number. Um, so that's a start. That's a really you know useful start for us. But absolutely, we're doing things differently week in, week out. So you look at something like the Four Hills, where we were just out in Innsbruck doing a, a big outside broadcast there. And rather than one team of people supplying one lot of pictures that went across all of Europe, we had teams on site creating local content, local content for Norway, for Italy, for Germany, for different markets that clearly care about winter sports, but for whom the story of the day is fundamentally different. You know, for Poland, Kamil Stock winning um, and becoming the dominant ski jumper in the world around the Four Hills was a massive story. So we went all out on Kamil Stock. In Germany, the story was about our commentator, Sven Hammerbald, who effectively lost his record by Kamil Stock doing so well. So you have a different editorial slant depending on which market you come from. And I think that's been something that we've really pushed the adaptation of if markets really care about an event let's create a localized personalized story for that market and has that required a, a degree of scaling up from uh from the point you were at where when when discovery came in all of the production budgets here have gone through the roof and you know i fight the battle every day but it's been a worthwhile spend you know our audiences were up 18 percent last year and i genuinely put that down heavily to not just the rights acquisition but the investment in local production you know we needed to put that local face on the story we needed to invest in the big talents you know Eurosport because of who they were used to employ commentators because they were available 300 days a year whereas now for the big events we want the big national faces the national heroes you know you look at our team from Sweden for the winter games it's unbelievable you know you've got the flag bearers from the last four games all there um and the biggest names in Swedish sport are part of our commentary team. And that's a big change for Eurosport and Discovery. So, you know, we know we needed to make the change. We've made that investment. And, you know, it was a little bit of a gamble, I have to say. But the good thing is that the responses have come back in terms of audience, in terms of social media reach, in terms of advertising. And, and that's been a real pleasure over the last three years. How far has the, the culture changed day to day? I mean, obviously, you'll have had a turnover of staff. I mean, it's difficult perhaps for you as well to, to get a full picture when you're, you're based in Paris and there are obviously big offices in, in other parts of the continent. But how much has the culture changed at Eurosport since, since that takeover was completed? Oh, it's funny, you know, when you live here, when you sit here in the office and you come in day by day, you sort of often feel that things aren't changing. And then you talk to people um, who've been here for the full sort of 20 odd years of Eurosports history, and they talk as if there's been a revolution. And um, and I think, um, you know, that it's, it's heartening to, to sometimes sit back and see how much it has changed. And and how much hopefully we've we've taken the brand forward and and created something really positive in terms of the energy around Eurosport. Um, a lot of the people are the same. You know, a lot of the people in the transmission suites and and doing the hard day to day graft are the same. We have made changes. You know, quite a few senior people have come in with with good records and good experience. But I have to say, majority of the change has been done by people who've been here for 20 odd years. And, you know, they have an instinct and feeling for sport, which you don't want to waste. Um, and it's been great to sort of work with, you know, real experts in their field. You know, I, I would never 
particularly having grown up in England, sort of pushed myself forward as the big winter sports experts, but I'm surrounded by winter sports experts here. Um, and one of the really nice things about Eurosport is that you touch so many sports and you're surrounded by so many people who really care about all the sports um, that it's a really positive atmosphere to work in. I mean, you um, you were there before, of course, in, in some some well, earlier part. I was like one of those lab rats down the bottom of the uh, experimental fields, where um, I was a, a commentator for Eurosport you know, back in the really early nineties, um, when I'd sit in the voiceover booth and I remember commentating on a, an African uh, Cup of Nations game, which was a nil-nil, where I didn't get the team sheets until halfway through the game. And, um, you know, it wasn't at the cutting edge of broadcasting at that time. Um, And, uh, you know, I think at that point, you know, what I as a fan, as a viewer, loved about Eurosport was that it brought me events that I just wasn't used to seeing before. You know, it was there right at the start of pay TV. Um, And as a result, you know, has a place in a lot of people's consciousness. Um, But it it flew with very small budgets and and it didn't have massive ambitions. It just got things on air and and that was enough at that point. You know, now the competition is much more uh, challenging. Uh, The standards have to be higher. And I think given all the changes in, in television, we also need to reinvent ourselves for a modern age, and I think we've made a, a big step towards that in the last few years, and there's a long way still to go. Yeah, I mean, have you uh, have you been conscious since you came back and since you came in and, and have been kind of heading up this transformation project of it being a... Are you, are you at a different place, basically, from uh, where you would have expected to be three years ago? Are you... It has the broadcast the change has Eurosport changed in a way that is different from how you expected it would yeah look I think um, we can genuinely all all the management team here can be really proud of the changes that have happened you know in terms of viewership in terms of advertising revenue in terms of audience how many people we touch every day across all our platforms you know all those matrices we we have an amazing story and um, you know I, I, I talked to um, the, the staff here just a few weeks ago and, and said, look, you, you know, it's, it's easy to get worried about the day-to-day and the challenges and the next problem and what we're going to do with, you know, uh, the next serving in the canteen. Um, but stand back for a minute, you know, look at what we've done in the industry and how that compares to other broadcasters, to other groups, you know, and by any standard, you know, this has been an amazing story. Um, and that's down to lots of different factors, you know, and it's great that my name goes out on a lot of press releases, but the reality is you've got people all over Europe, you've got huge investment from the Discovery Group who've been brilliant in terms of believing in what we can do. Um, and that's added up to a, to a huge change. Um, and, and that's to, been a, you know, a, a real roller coaster experience, but I don't think we could have believed three years ago that we'd be where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, even the acquisition of the Olympics itself, you know, it's one of those days that you're always remembering that, you know, I came back here and, and we said, look, we've done this deal, we've, we've bought the Olympic rights. And people thought we'd got some sort of highlights deal or, you know, a couple of territories. And then when it finally dawned on everyone that what we'd actually done, there was genuine shock in the building, you know, because that level of investment had not been seen before in Eurosport. And, um, you know, that's been a... Uh, a big change, you know, and the good thing is we've, we've done it all, we've kept our profit margins, we've delivered all our economic and audience targets, um, but I think the bit that for me is special is that the ambition has been realised, and yes, we've still got a massive way to go, you know, huge challenges ahead of us, um, but in three years this has been a, a pretty remarkable story. How how central is that Eurosport, um, sorry, how, how central is that Olympic deal been? Has that taken you in a, a different direction maybe than than you were planning uh, when when you were thinking, what, what can Eurosport be? I think it's taken us in the same direction, which is localisation, which is relevant sports rights, which is exclusivity, which is driver content. But it's acted as a, a totem. You know, it's acted as a sign of what we've done and it's an easily explainable sign to the industry. Um, and I think one of the things that we often forget is that changing perceptions of old brands really is tough. 
you know, people believe that Eurosport is that Eurosport they watched 20 odd years ago. Um, so to physically prove we have changed, this is not just somebody coming in and trying to sell a, an old package in, in new clothing, um, is really difficult. And therefore, to say, look at what we're doing with the Olympics has been a great door opener, a great explainer of, of how we've changed an old company. But to an extent, do you end up you know, do you end up back at being Eurosport, if you see what I mean? You, you start to change things and you modernise and you bring in bigger rights packages and so on. Is there a kernel of identity there that that you end up kind of building on or is the is the process still going to take you further and further away from, from what Eurosport was in the 90s and, and around that time? I think, you know, we, we, we have something amazing from Eurosport in, in the history, which is the reach, the fact it's on virtually every pay platform and free-to-air in Germany. is something that is incredible, you know, and if someone tried to do it now, how expensive that would be to try and achieve that sort of ability to touch people all over Europe, not to mention, you know, we've got a big footprint in Asia now, we've got a joint venture in India, you know, we touch a lot of people around the world. Um, so you don't want to ignore that history, and, and that involves relationships with a lot of customers, a lot of partners, a lot of people. Um, but fundamentally, we are different, you know, and, and we are different in so many different ways. And the technology will change more, and the way that we touch our audiences will, will change more and more as we become more focused on this delivery by direct to consumer options. Um, so, you know, we, we can't be the old Eurosport anymore, but we need to respect what we inherited and we need to build on that and make it relevant for the next year. Let's talk a bit about kind of that localization angle. And obviously that's going to mean, I guess, particularly in the rights market, that will mean a lot more autonomy for, for bits of the Eurosport operation than they've had before. You know, if, if you are Eurosport Germany and you're doing a deal for the Bundesliga, then... You know, your expectation to deliver on that in that territory is going to be very, very different from anything that's gone before when, you know, you consider the whole pan-European um, aspect of it. Yeah, I think it's still important we use the scale. You know, one of the things that we still do here is that we buy all the content for all the markets here centrally. And that allows us to do deals that other people can't do. You know, if you, you look at a sport like handball, the chance to offer exposure in the UK is a nice little additional way of helping grow the sport, in addition to taking the rights in Norway and Sweden, for example. So the scale still comes in useful. Um, we still have a centralised expertise here um, that we that make to support the markets and deliver local products. So, you know, while we, we are trying to look and feel more and more like a local channel, I think it's also important that you bring a expertise that the scale brings with it. Mm. And to be able to hire somebody who's one of the best football producers in Europe, in Abby Besson, for example, who, who joined us from HBS, you know, that's possible because you've got the scale. Um, and he brings fresh ideas and he brings a influence on what we do in Norway and Sweden and other markets. Um, so I think that central expertise is still important, but it's an expertise that is about building local faces and about you know, taking uh, steps forward that are interesting steps by a European standard mm. as opposed to simply a standard in one individual market. Mm. And what's, um, what kind of ambition are you looking to show in each market? I mean, I feel like it's probably not one for this cycle because everyone's talking about Amazon, but um, have, you, have you had many questions this time about the Premier League here in the UK, for example? Um, we get asked about everything. And, you know, again, one of the things that Discovery said to me on day one was if you asked about a sports rights, say we look at everything and we'll, we'll do a consideration of everything. And I, I looked at the guy and said, you mean everything? And he's like, yeah, absolutely everything. So, you know, yeah, we look at it all. Um, doesn't mean we have to act on it. And I think we have to make sensible business decisions. Um, but if you look at the ambition by buying exclusive rights to Norwegian football in Norway, Swedish football in Sweden, Polish football in Poland, German football in Germany, you know, that shows the ambition of the company and shows that we are prepared to make local investments where it's a, a sensible economic choice. But of course, that again is going to is going to create different impressions of Eurosport in, in each of those markets, particularly with football, because football drives so much uh, of of perception in uh, of sport in in Europe. So again, what what do you do to manage that 
across the whole board? Oh, look, I think, you know, you, the, the unsexy part of the job is that you're permanently looking at Excel sheets and profit projections and, and analysis of the numbers. Um, and, and that really guides decision making. And that sometimes it feels like, you know, we've made some big gamble on rights here and there. But there's always months and months of PowerPoints and Excels behind it and, uh, and a sensible business process. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a balancing act. Um, you've got to look at what markets need the investment and where the benefits will come back in the long term, not necessarily in the first year. And the good thing about having a company the size of Discovery behind you is you can take those long-term bets. You can say, look, our belief is that this is worth doing over a five, ten-year period, as opposed to saying it must immediately pay back in the first three months. Mm. Um, so it's great to have that sort of scale and that sort of vision behind you um, because it allows you to make the right strategic call and not just something which I think Eurosport maybe suffered from historically, which was it's got to pay back immediately. Let's, um, let's go back to that partnership with Discovery. I mean, obviously, this is a big project for them now in Pyeongchang. They haven't really done anything like this before in, in the live media space. So how how much you know how has the communication process worked between the two parties between you uh, in Paris and, and Discovery in, in London and in the US? Oh, I think um, you know look, it's genuinely it feels more like one company these days than two companies. You know, and if you look at how we operate in most markets, there's one local ad sales team, there's one local affiliate sales team that sells sport and the rest of the discovery bundle. So as a result, we work a lot with the individual country heads um, on how we're going to execute the sports content. The commentators are all back in the markets. Again, one of the great things we inherited from the old Eurosport was the fact that they'd set up a commentary system that says all our Polish commentators live in Warsaw. You know, when I started here, all the commentators flew to Paris and, you know, it was great socially, but pretty expensive to do. Um, and Eurosport managed to set up a system where you could commentate back in your home market and yet all the transmissions still came out of Paris. So we now have teams of commentators sat in discovery offices with discovery ad salespeople and discovery affiliate salespeople and digital people in key markets. And, um, you know, it, it's more and more one big company and we are the sports branch of that big company. Um, and that's a big change for Eurosport, but I think it's the right change and, and it benefits from the scale that Discovery can offer us. Mm. I mean, you talk about Discovery being a big company. They're, they're about to become an even bigger company with the acquisition of, of Scripps. Uh, although it should be stressed at this point that that Scripps deal is officially legally still to close. Um, and that's, that reflects something that's happening in other parts of the industry where you know there is a... Um, an amalgamation of some of the, the very, very biggest media companies um, in the world. Obviously, Disney buying up all the, the entertainment assets and some of the sports assets from, from Fox in the US and, and so on. And um, what, what are your reflections on that more broadly, first of all? I think, you know, scale certainly brings strength in a lot of markets. And if you look at the trend towards OTT and direct-to-consumer offerings, you know, I think the danger is that you end up being asked to buy 50 different products in the market and it all gets too complicated. So being part of a scaled offering um, is something that hopefully means your route to the consumer is easier. Um, and I think that's a big argument in favour of Discovery, you know, because they've consistently shown their ability to make big investments in SBS, in Eurosport, in scripts, um, and the size of the company um, is something that gives you some solidity. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the new age of how do you reach a consumer that can make so many individual choices, I think being part of that wider group is a, is a big asset. Yeah, is that something that's going to have an effect beyond the kind of bottom line? Is that something that's going to feed into some of the programming choices you're able to make, you know, particularly on, on the storytelling side as opposed to the just... The, the live coverage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, look, I think the big challenge for any sports event and therefore any sports broadcaster is how do you find a new audience? How do you get people excited? How do you get people aware of the stories of the heroes? And being able to push content onto a wide range of entertainment and lifestyle channels is a huge asset for us. 
um, in the same way that you want to push content onto shareable digital platforms. You know, you need to find ways of bringing people on there, that step-by-step -step approach into a live sports event. And I think working with different platforms, touching different audiences is a big part of that. And, you know, we look at what we're doing in Norway and Sweden around the Olympics. You know, one of the things that, um, again, I can take no credit for, but I've watched with admiration, is the fact that our Norwegian and Swedish discovery offices have got a huge amount of content that is lifestyle content, that is a comedian being driven all the way from Norway to Oslo, uh, to, to um, uh, Korea. Um, content like that, that really helps build the awareness of the games to a, an audience that doesn't necessarily watch sports channels. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a helpful tool to have that wider asset. If you look at the UK as a, as a good example, you know, what we've done with Quest in the UK has been great in that we've put a lot of our snooker content has gone on Quest. It builds a massive audience on Quest. And we genuinely felt that helps build the audience on Eurosport as well. Um, so using free-to-air windows, using free digital windows as well as paid digital windows, you know, that's all part of uh, a challenge of find that new audience, encourage them in, build up an event. Um, and that also gives us a unique story to tell to an event organiser, to a federation, to say, look, we can make your event bigger. Um, it's not always just about the money. You know, it's, it's uh, increasingly with those particularly um, developed sports federations, they want to know how you can help them. And I think Discovery as a group can really help those sports organisations. Yeah. How much does that take us back to where, you know, organisations, public broadcasters, national broadcasters have been dealing with sport and the promotion of sport then? You know, the, the BBC, for example, having somebody on an entertainment show and, and that drawing attention towards the sports broadcast. Is that somewhere, is that something like where we're going in, the, in, in this kind of mass media age? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think, you know, you you have to look at, if you're a sports event organiser, as we are, you know, we run things like world touring cars and, and we run endurance motorcycling. It's, it's not just a broadcast, sometimes we're an event holder as well. You've got to think, well, what's the right thing for me and, and how do I make the most of my assets? And therefore, it's very important to be able to speak to communities in different ways and you know, one of the things that I, I like about uh, Eurosport Discovery is that we're part of free and part of pay, we're part of entertainment and part of sport. Um, because I think if you're a, a paid sports channel, particularly an expensive paid sports channel, an a la carte channel, um, it's difficult to do the right thing for the sport other than give them a, right, a big check. You know, and you need to see it in a more holistic way um, and to genuinely work with the sport as a partner. You know, we've all come into this industry because we love sport and, and we fundamentally want to share that viewing experience with fans all over the world. And um, I think, you know, as an industry, we always have to think about, you know, the next audience, how do we bring them in on the Olympics? You know, the deal that we've done with Snap is, for example, I think a great example of what we need to be doing. You know, because we're aware that there's teenage audiences out there that are using Snapchat as their main source of information. So we need to be out there with sports stories that touch them and encourage them to share the joy that we all see. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. You've got um, Eurosport player, which you imagine or you hope will get some kind of a, a boost off the back of, uh, of Pyeongchang. You're working with Bamtech. Now, first, actually, before we, before we go on, how have you found that transition into the kind of Bamtech age for your digital product? I think, you know, it's a, it's a huge learning process. No one does this like we do it, you know, to be across so many languages, so many territories, so many sports, 
and, and particularly, you know, Eurosport helpfully chooses the sort of sports that um, don't start and finish at the right time sometimes, you know, tennis and winter sports and cycling. It's not like there's definite start and end times and the weather affected and the rest. And, and all those things are challenging when you're setting up a new way of consuming the sports. Um, but we know it's a, a journey, a knowledge-building journey that we need to really um, spend as much time and focus on as we can. Um, and, you know, the results are... Are surprising in terms of we've got a really good uptake of, of people buying those monthly subscriptions but also I think not just in terms of financial but also that understanding that people begin to live their lives around a certain way of consuming a sport you know sports biggest asset is that it can change your technological choices you know, and that's why pay TV invested so heavily in it. And that's why um, OTT players will invest in it, because it can just change your whole fundamental first choice of what system do you buy? Mm. what, How do you experience your media content? Um, and as a result, you know, that, that it means sport is a great place to be if you're part of the media industry. The, the thing that seems uh, different about this era that that sports broadcasting is going into obviously sport has always been about bringing people together whether that's in a venue or whether that's watching a single broadcast at the same time but obviously what OTT platforms and and various kind of digital channels do is cater to different kinds of behavior um, for individual people so I mean is that something that feeds into your way of of thinking about what a sporting event is that you're now kind of you're almost serving an audience of one kind of several million times over rather than serving a single multi-million person audience. Yeah, you're certainly trying to build communities around the sport, you know, and I think if you look at how Eurosport has changed, that the fact that we push ourselves as home of cycling and make ourselves a natural home of the cycling enthusiast, home of Grand Slam tennis in most markets in Europe, home of the Olympics, you know, it's focusing communities as opposed to being what Eurosport used to be, which was a real smorgasbord. You know, it's like, let's have a taste of the world's strongest man. Let's have a taste of these events that maybe aren't part of our future anymore. You know, we need to be a little bit more focused and clearly identified with content so that people come back to us more and more as the natural home of that content. And, and not just when the live event is on, but on a community basis, sharing that story, sharing their opinions around that content on a daily basis. What's changed for you in in the the 25 years or so that you've you've been working in uh, in sports media? Obviously, initially as as a reporter, when you're kind of building up a sense, I guess, of of what a sports story is. But you know, particularly in in broadcasting, how has that changed? Um, I think you know. <laughs> The first thing is that my shoulders are a lot better now. When I used to work in radio back 25 years ago, I used to have to carry so much equipment around on my shoulder that I was permanently in pain. Um, so at least I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and I think the technological change has really shaped so much of what we've done. You know, it's remarkable when I talk to my own kids now and um, my, one of my sons said, you know, what, what TV did you used to watch? And you start saying, oh, you know, I used to watch kids' shows between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., which was the only time they were on. And they look at you like, you know, you're from the um, prehistoric era, uh, which perhaps I am now. But, um, you know, the technological change and the range of options that are open to you, you know, is the thing that really makes it exciting. And, you know, we're now in a huge acceleration of what options are available to a viewer. And therefore, the challenge for the industry is far more about being ahead of that change, preparing for that change. Um, and sports rights are a brilliant thing because people will find the sports they care about. A dedicated audience will find them. Um, and that gives you some solidity in a changing world. And yes, you still have to do all the things in terms of building that audience and, and uh, encouraging more people to come in. But at least you start from a strong position. You know, if, if you're showing a Man United-Liverpool game in any market in the world, you know an audience will find you. And, and that's a really strong thing that sport has that general entertainment really struggles with. What, what are some of the, the kind of fundamental tenets that you you try and um, build your storytelling around when you are moving from platform to platform when you're moving for example 
you know, you've talked a bit about the partnership with Snap, which is a very, very different way of telling stories from from what we've seen before. You know, how how do you keep grasping something that um, that's going to to be coherent um, on all these different platforms? Yeah, I think you know there are certain mouse traps that catch an audience, no matter what the platform. You know, and those mouse traps are, are sports heroes, their national flag waving, their humour, um, their you know surprise, and and those sort of essential storytelling ingredients work across all sorts of different platforms. Of course, the execution is very different. But you look at something like our Canton Commissioner of Football content, which you know hit massive numbers across all of Europe. And it hit, it hit it because it had the credibility of a major star that everyone recognised, and it had the credibility of humour that was from the heart and that people knew um, he saw the joke with it. And as a result, you, know, you start off from pretty good uh, positions. And we've learned about it, we've altered the duration of those pieces, and we've altered the way we amplify those pieces. But you started off with a couple of fundamentals there that you knew should attract an audience from the start. And is that um, is there going to be a space for all of these things? I guess when you know when, again we we talked about the kind of um, the dismantling of the of the single audience into all these different places. Is there going to be room for uh, for all of this, and or, or are we going to start seeing you know different things prioritised in the next few years? Well, look, the, the economic model may be different for a lot of different options, um, but what I like about the industry at the moment is you know if you go to my local non-league club in, in the UK in Matlock Town, all of a sudden they can afford to put pictures live on their website and you can see the goals from their games. Um, and that not, might not be a massive revenue model, but it's something that works and serves an audience. Um, and it's a long way apart from the sort of 30-odd cameras at a big Premier League game. But there's a model behind it. And I like the fact that smaller federations can find ways, you know, via Facebook or via YouTube or via their own sites that allows their pictures to be put out there and their stories to be put out there. And there's a uh, egality of opportunity now in the industry, which is a really positive trend. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you know, that exists on a free touch your audience basis. Um, there's also that same desire that you must watch certain big sports events or events you care about that drives the pay impulse. So, you know, the range of opportunity, the range of ability to tell those stories is uh, growing by the day. Um, and that's why this is a pretty uh, good place to be working. All right, let's, let's talk a bit about the industry more widely, just 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 very briefly. I mean, what are some of the things that you've seen that Eurosport aren't doing, that somebody else is doing, um, that you think are particularly exciting or, uh, you know, could be particularly influential in, in the years ahead? Well, look, we've seen a lot of experiments and, you know, we've done some of them, but I wouldn't say that we're the experts on them. In terms of Live 360, for example, of Live VR, um, and I think, you know, that's something that may or may not work, may or not, may not be adapted going forward, but certainly some of the experiments we've seen have been great, you know, and um, we watched, for example, what UEFA did in the tunnels of being able to effectively walk through a tunnel with a team as they come out on the pitch and stuff like that is brilliant. You know, and again, it brings you into an event. It, it's uh, such a different experience that, it, that it's really interesting. So, you know, I think we certainly um, benefit from that. I think, you know, you look at some of the community sites that have developed, you know, GCN, Global Cycling Network, I think a really good example of, of building content around the sport and serving an audience in a way that's way beyond just watching a live sport passively. Um, so I really like that sense of, of sites and, uh, that build communities using a combination of written and video and, and looking at technological aspects, but also selling content direct to consumers that might be merchandise. Um, so there's a huge amount of stuff out there that I think is really interesting. But the great thing about Discovery in Eurosport is that you're riding all lots of different horses at the same time. And, um, you know, we're not tied down to a technology, we're not tied down to a platform. Um, but there's certainly loads of things out there that you think, wow, you know, that's an interesting area. I mean, the final one that I'd really talk up is, you know, wearable data and mm. uh, the idea that you can 
genuinely tell a story based on facts and based on physical scientific evidence as opposed to a commentator's perception. I think you know that's got a long way to go, um, and we need to learn how to tell those stories better. But you know, there's a lot of companies out there now that you know created these patches from which you can take five, six bits of data at the same time, and um, I think that's an area that we'd love to watch more and more closely. Yeah, what's your what's your attitude towards something like that? Is it do you um, do you just kind of want to wave everything through and say right let's let's get some of this stuff on air and see how it works and and we'll kind of pass what it's um what its uh utility is as we go or do you have an instinct of what's going to help tell a story on the on a broadcast and and kind of only welcome that kind of stuff well i think you know we're, we're, we're testing and learning you, you look at an event like the tour de france you know a couple of years ago we had all that data about you know gps data on every bike and we fundamentally couldn't use it you know we were swamped in data that we didn't know how to mine and we didn't know how to turn into stories i think working with um ca technologies in the last year you know we've made real progress on that and we used more and more data on screen but you don't want to swamp an audience. You know, this is maybe stuff that's better available on the second screen than the main screen, um, but it still should be there as part of their choices. Um, I feel like I, I, I preach the same message all the time, but, you know, you want to try and offer a, an audience the chance to immerse themselves in a sport, mm. and that data is something that is a way of them immersing themselves in the sport, but it needs to be farmed, it needs to be curated, and it needs to be put in a, in a way that they can easily have an influence with. Um, I mean, this, is, this is on my mind partly because we had the NBA here in, um, in London yesterday. But one of the things that Adam Silver has talked about in the past as well as, as a completely different way of, um, of approaching a live sports broadcast is, is selling access to the last... 15 minutes, last 10 minutes, last 5 minutes of a game. From a broadcaster's perspective, is that something that you can see you know, being worked into your model? Is that, is that something that um, you, know, you, you, you feel... Yeah, it, it sort of goes to your definition of what's a broadcaster, right? In terms of linear broadcast, no, not really. But in terms of you know, creating bite-sized experiences for people um, and making those available on different platforms and in different ways. You know, yeah, I think you should be open to it. Um, the reality is that people want smaller video elements of content. Um, and I think they'd also want it live. You know, at the moment, we, we mainly talk about short-form highlights, but to say, okay, you're going to get the last minute and a half of this event live on the Twitter feed, you know, is a really interesting concept. And and again, if it helps bring new audiences in, it benefits everybody in the ecosystem. Um, you know, we, we have to deal with the reality that the sports television watching audience is getting older um, and the younger audience wants to consume in a different way. And therefore, we need to make the content available in a different way. Yeah. What are you, what, Olympics aside, Peter, what are you most looking forward to? But, um, I, you know, Derby County's uh, ultimate promotion to the Premier League after so many years of trying would be a nice way of capping off the season. But um, I think, um, look, you know, the, the beauty of this industry is there's always something new. You know, there's always another challenge. There's always another hill around the corner. You know, and there's been a massive amount of effort towards the Olympics, and we'll get through it. And then, you know, personally and professionally, we all look at our next challenge. Um but the great thing about sport is there's always another challenge just around the corner and, and always something else that will test you. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the great things about the industry is that rise and fall and that rhythm of the sports business um, is something that, you know, is, is really addictive. Um, I think when you talk about what sports events work, they're ones that have a calendar, that have a, a rhythm to them. Um, and that rhythm of the sports industry, I think, is something that is really special. And if uh, if Derby don't go up this year, should we be bracing ourselves for a, a series of suspiciously large Eurosport bids for EFL rights? Sadly, I'm surrounded by people who, who know me too well, so uh, <laughs> I'm often outvoted on that one. OK, well, thanks very much, Peter. Um, it's been a, a really interesting discussion, and, uh, yeah, best of luck. Thanks, Owen. See you soon. Bye-bye.